Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, and I only kneel when I'm tired. (laughs) Today we're talking about Minute 41, which begins with a staff pounding and ends with a lone voice. Joining us on the show today, we have Father David Mowry, chaplain of the Movies by Minutes community. Hello! <laughs> Pete and Andy, thanks so much for having me back. You know, I'm just back from Stuttgart, and i got to tell you, the museums <laughs> over there, they have these great holographic displays now. They're, they're so lifelike. So lifelike! Uh, are they life, li- life model decoys? <laughs> I love that you're here for this minute, and you get to, you get to actually listen to Loki uh, quoting the Bible. I'm sure that's what he's quoting here. <laughs> Oh, Loki. There's there's a lot to say about Loki in this minute. Oh, indeed, indeed. Um, Before we jump into it specifically, I do just want to check in. Uh, So we're going to be talking about um, the next three minutes with you, and I wanted to know Mm -hmm. what specifically drew you to this part of the film to talk about. I think in this part of The Avengers, you get a lot more about Loki's motivations. And I was torn between this scene and his dialogue with Thor just a couple minutes on from this, because you start to hear what what's Loki in this for, not just in terms of seeing him as the puppet dancing on the end of Thanos' strings, but in terms of what he sees as his own legitimate motivations for this. And that opens up a really interesting philosophical discussion because we, in the, and I chose these minutes also because who doesn't love a good villain speech? This is just a really good villain speech in these minutes. And oh, it's a you, barn burner. Uh, I tell you what, and uh, you get a really great heroic moment, which we'll, we'll talk about later in this week that I think speaks to something that the MCU got right and needed to get right in this movie for the rest of the MCU to work. Wow. Well, it's going to be, I mean, there's plenty to talk about, as you said. This is a rich, rich section of the film. So, but yes, as you brought up at the beginning, we are returning to Stuttgart, uh, Germany. And, uh, And Loki, this is kind of right after he's uh, he's taken out the scientist inside. He <laughs> extracted an eyeball, and uh, and now he's kind of herded everybody. We we saw him in the last minute. He took out one police car. I don't know why the second police car never shows up, but it was there, and suddenly there's no police. I don't know. Anyway, he has now kind of herded everybody into this courtyard out in front of the uh, of this building, this museum, or. Uh, opera house whatever it is and uh and he is using several holograms of himself to kind of uh to kind of keep everybody in this center area as he gives this speech and he demands everybody right at the beginning of this minute to kneel and i just i guess let's first start talking about this whole idea of submission uh, particularly in germany as you know as mm. loki's initial point of entry with this group how, how does that uh, how does that play well, I mean, the first thing I thought when I was listening to this was just how good the English education is uh, over in Germany, <laughs> that even in a high-stress situation like this, the the people of Stuttgart are able to understand uh, 
through I understand Loki through his Asgardian accent on top of speaking English. I gotta say, I didn't question that once. Is that so foolish? <laughs> Everybody's I guess that's probably true. I think everybody does speak English very, very well. Uh, oh but, yeah. Uh, but I did didn't cross my mind. <laughs> Oh, that was my experience when I was in high school. We went on a a tour of Austria and southern Germany, and we stopped in a high school in southern Germany and talked with the students there. And boy, they ran rings around me in terms of English. Even as a high school student, their pronunciation and diction and grammar was so much yeah. better than I had. I was so impressed that I, I have neeked German in me whatsoever. I can't speak a, a single sentence of it. It's it's funny. It actually reminds me uh, on the next reel we talked about the before trilogy, Richard Linklater's before trilogy, and there's a scene mm. in the first movie before sunrise when they're talking to a, a couple um, uh, Viennese theater uh, students, and they they and um, the two characters um, uh, come up to them and say, "Do you speak English?" And the the Viennese guys like, uh, or no, actually they were German. I don't know. I think they were German students, and they said, uh, "Yeah, but can you speak German for a change?" <laughs> and I just I thought that was very funny because that's probably you know yeah, that's, something that they all are saying inside, even if they're a, not yeah, saying very, it. a very fair request, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I, but to your question, Andy, about submission. What of course, what comes to mind is there's a whole cultural history that we're going to delve into in these coming weeks. And what's interesting to me is that, in terms of rhetorical strategy, this is a bad way to start the the use of of fear and demanding people to kneel is usually a non-starter when you're working a crowd. Because it's asking people to humiliate themselves. And what we've seen throughout history is that more often tyrants and those in power will create us versus them. Here we are on the inside. We're the ones who are going to rise up. We're all on the same side. And the people out there, they're the problem. We're gonna, we are gonna make them kneel. And we've seen that strategy play out over and over and over again. Um, Loki being as guardian and, and thinking himself a little bit better and smarter than everyone else, it takes the more direct approach. It kind of jumps a couple steps to having everyone submit to him right away. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting tact to take, you know, the, the the approach that he does. It's it's very direct and it's very menacing. It's not um and I guess I don't know. I guess the way that he sees it is he doesn't, uh, unlike, you know, other uh, dictators and people who have, you know, acted this way over the course of history, they can't do it alone. They do need a team of people behind them to kind of like be able to kind of lead and get people to do this sort of thing. Loki does have the, you know, he is, he is an Asgardian. He is able to do a little more than, uh, you know, your run of the mill uh, dictator. And so, and, and he has the staff of wonders. And he has the Staff of Wonders. Maybe they're there just all is. mesmerized by the Staff. <laughs> you have to roll a D100 yeah. every time you use the Staff of Wonders. That's exactly right. And get a random effect. Is there a savings throw against the Staff of Wonders? Yeah, <laughs> right. It doesn't look like it. Doesn't it doesn't look like it. <laughs> but it, I, I do think that it was actually an interesting decision on the part of the filmmakers to choose to set this entire section of the film in Germany. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I mean, it could have been just down the street in Brooklyn. It could have been in LA. I mean, it could have been all over it, many places of the world, but they very specifically chose, no, we're going to do this in Germany. And, 
I feel like there is so much history with Germany, and uh, obviously, I think this whole idea really brings up a lot of uh, Hitler aspects, and and we certainly are going to talk about that by the time we get to the end of this minute in the next couple minutes, because there's a lot going on as far as the decisions that they made to kind of paint this, the way that this particular figure chooses to speak to the people and and tell them, you know, what he thinks of them, and then, of course, the lone voice that stands up. I, it's, I find it to be a very intriguing, uh, a, a very intriguing take that is kind of a surprise in a film like this. How much Midgardian history do you think is taught in Asgard? Like, do you think Loki is making oh. this because he's an authoritarian at heart or because he actually knows that he's in a contentious part of the world at a, at a, a time in which that this sort of menacing historical vibe is, is going to have extra resonance? I think that'd be like asking someone in 17th century Europe if they've studied Aboriginal Australian history. I, I just <laughs> I so don't too. think they would they would see it as worthwhile. Like, why would I need to bother learning the history of savages? Yeah, I, I think that's actually a great response to that to that particular question because it is one of those things that makes me think. Okay, this is a a filmmaker choice because it's going to resonate with the audience that knows more than the character delivering the speech ever would. Mm -hmm. And it's fine. I'm okay being manipulated that way. But in, again, <laughs> The Curse of the MMM, right, the, the movie-by-minute uh, process <laughs> is, I'm aware of this in a way that I, I normally wouldn't be. The other thing that occurs to me as we're talking about this scene, uh, the two things that Clint asked for was a distraction and an eyeball. And we've, we've checked the eyeball off the list. And I, I had to remember, right, this is the distraction. This is Lo the distraction. Lo Loki is just being really performatively evil. Now, he happens to be loving every minute of it, but this is a great big show meant to get a lot of attention. And so, yes, rhetorically, not a great way to win over the crowd, but that's not his point. He's doing something that works in the short term because that's his timetable for this. He's not starting a takeover of Stuttgart. He is... Just killing time and, and attracting <laughs> attention to take the uh, take any attention off of the iridium theft going on. And and in that regard, you you kind of don't uh, like you have to imagine he didn't expect anybody to put up a fight because like he's just there for the show. Like had he known what he was doing, then maybe he would have chosen a different distraction. Well, but at the same time, don't you think? Those are two things that they're doing, but there is kind of this third thing that they're doing, which is drawing the team out, right? And that's the whole idea that is going to kind of lead into eventually Loki getting captured and then Barton attacking the helicarrier. Like, all of that is kind of part of a setup that I think that they've kind of been planning as far as a way to kind of put some put these puzzle pieces together so that they can... Uh, I, I, and some of that, I think... I end up pulling more from there was that extended scene that we had of Barton and Loki talking down in Loki's lair. But um, but it's still I, I think that that's largely still kind of part of the intent as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally get that. And there's a little Xanatos gambit going on here. Lots of pieces that have to fall just so for the plan to come together. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, if if the Avengers hadn't picked up on the fact that Loki showed up, if their face trace wasn't working and 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 Loki just kind of like, where would things go if Loki ends up getting all these people to subjugate to him and the Avengers yeah. never showed up? Would he say, uh, OK, well, you know what? All right, everyone, keep kneeling. Just keep just keep kneeling. No, no don't get up. Everyone just keep <laughs> any minute now uh someone will stop me i'm sure It'd be like the uh the the hayseeds in the bank in raising arizona you know they'd be counting to 100 mm-hmm. and finally like ah screw this they stand up and loki would be pulling back up <laughs> yeah i do like that they chose Germany, I do think that it allows for a little more kind of a resonance of a scene like this. Um, at the same time, to your point, Pete, it doesn't make a lot of sense as far as Loki having any sense as to why he would be doing any of this or what he like how how other people would be interpreting this. It does end up feeling very much like a directorial choice to specifically do this. Although I guess you could argue, you know what, Captain America spent some time in Germany. He's going to have some specific things to say about it. So maybe that's kind of a, a connection as well. Yeah, that's another setup that that uh, again that conversation Cap Cap and Loki you know, would have an extended conversation where Loki has no idea what he's talking about. Like, I is hear that, you, is, man, is that, but why do I care? <laughs> is that, yeah, like that part's of, part of Loki's punishment, he has to sit there and take a history lesson from Cap. <laughs> Cap. <laughs> I was very insensitive what you did, and let me tell you why. I know you were right, there. Right, right. <laughs> what, okay, what do we... um we had seen Loki playing around with his illusions of himself a number of times in Thor. He does it when he's uh, on Jotunheim, as far as like when they're fighting with the thr- Frost Giants. Uh, he does it toward the end of the film when suddenly there's a whole bunch of Lokis all around Thor. In this particular case, he's got three other ones. A couple of them seem glitchy. I'm not exactly sure if that's intended or if there's some control issue that he's having as far as creating these. But does it work for you as far as kind of creating these four versions of himself to kind of hold everybody at bay as opposed to just the one well one of the weaknesses of this particular setup was everyone running out of the museum slash opera house whatever it is and then turning around to look at the front door they just they all the whole crowd just stops there because they hit their mark in the earlier scene so that they're all already somewhat penned in to this little courtyard out in front of the building to me what's I think what the illusions are doing here are they're, they're simply demonstrating that Loki is possessed of powers beyond human ken, and who knows what else he is capable of. And then directorially, they flicker a little bit just so that we know where the real Loki is, so that our attention is focused on uh, on Tom, who is acting. Although I did have a note when they, we have that scene where we just have the one illusion standing there. Like, is the director's note, just stand there and look menacing, Tom. We just, we just need a, a couple beats of that to fill in these illusions. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and the problem with, I have with that is that there's the only reason you have an illusion that glitches is when the holographic projector is broken. There is no holographic <laughs> projector to be broken in the sequence. We know which Loki is the real Loki because it's the one that's talking. And even mm. if you can't track that, who cares? It's multiple Lokis and that's awesome magics. Let's just let it happen. <laughs> so I think it's weird and kind of dumb. And I've I, it's always stood out to me. Why do they need the holographic? 
holographic projector that does not exist to glitch. It's silly. Yeah. I notice it every time. Are Loki's powers confidence-based like they are for Spider-Man? Like, because he's been shaken, <laughs> he just he doesn't have good control over his magic, so he's just kind of doubting himself. Are you saying we're about to introduce emo Loki in this sequence? Because that would be... <laughs> well, I think an argument could be made that he's always emo Loki. <laughs> he doesn't have bangs, though. That is true. Oh, that would look so bad. Oh, <laughs> all the hair and then just kind of down in front of oh, him. Oh, no, no, thank you. The hiddle bang. No, no, yeah. no, no. <laughs> the hiddle bang. Oh, man. The, uh, yeah, because the, uh, the other issue, like, uh, when he strikes his staff on the ground, and this could just be the sound mix that I have as I listen to it in my uh, through my headphones, but it sounds kind of like this staff resounds, like, across the entire courtyard. Like, are, are we hearing the staff of the holograms as well? Like, it, it almost sounds like it's coming from all sides. And so I don't know if that was intended because he's screaming Neil at everybody, but when he is specifically speaking to everybody, it's certainly like none of the other holograms are mimicking him. They're not like mirror images of him also doing what he's doing. They're just like standing guard, which uh, I guess is kind of an interesting aspect that he can, they're not just copies of himself. They're actually second versions of himself that he has just doing what he needs them to do. So I can't tell. Are you making a case that maybe his like internal CPU is at capacity? Like he can't project because they're all autonomous. They're all autonomous. Right. You need to upgrade your your GPU there, Loki. You're really pushing (laughs) your hardware to the limit. Yeah, because when he's doing it in... I'm trying to remember specifically in Thor when they're all surrounding Thor and Thor is fighting them, if they're all exactly doing the same thing or if some of them are are acting autonomously as well. And I can't quite remember. And I know Thor finally, you know, hits Mjolnir on the the Bifrost, uh, the Rainbow Bridge, and gets them all to disappear except for Loki. But I can't quite recall. Same thing on Jotunheim. I know I, I... I feel like the one who is talking, though, is the illusion as he's talking or maybe gosh i can't remember now but i i feel like it, the the illuse, illusion version of loki was talking to the frost giant but i could be wrong anyway i guess that's kind of the confusing thing like how does his magic work and maybe it's the fact that he's creating so many of them but then i want to go back to thor it's like why were none of them on the rainbow bridge glitching uh, my no prize answer for that is because he was on Asgard. And as we know, uh-huh. Asgardians are a little bit better when they're on Asgard. You can see, like, with, with Hela in Thor Ragnarok, she is more powerful on Asgard than she is elsewhere. Sure. Okay. I buy that. <laughs> and, you know... No, as... no prize inbound. <laughs> That's right. We're, we're sending it in the mail right now. Put it up on the wall. <laughs> um, and, you know, I suppose that there's a... Um, a case to be made, you know, ever since he arrived on on Earth, on Midgard, he has had kind of some moments of weakness. Like when he first gets here, he's kind of drenched in sweat. He keeps like he can't hold himself up very well at the whole start of the film. And I wonder if there are particular points where carrying around the Mind Stone is started. It kind of shows that it takes a little bit of a toll on him. And it's a very subtle thing. But I mean, perhaps that is something else that could be. That was his that was his Loki's fatigued conversation, Loki's sick conversation in the back of the pickup. I remember that now. That's as many minutes ago. But it was quite if, a while. If, if I recall, I never quite felt like they sold that enough. It's just they never really explained why. 
Yeah. And I think that was the biggest thing. It's like, was the trip through the, uh, you know, through space and time, was it exhausting? Like, I don't know. No, I mean, you've heard of jet lag. Just wait for space yes. lag. I tell you what, <laughs> it's there, a yeah. bear. I'm surprised all the Chitari don't fall into New York City and take a nap. That, that's why they have their little masks. Right. That's what helps right. with that. <laughs> They're all in their Airbnb condos. See, that, They'll check that, in that, at those four. Masks, <laughs> yeah, those masks must serve a purpose. That's the only one I can think of. <laughs> right. Um, all right, so does it bother either of you that we have this group here in this courtyard? We had police pulling up. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there were two cop cars that pulled up. The first one gets blasted and flips over. The second one kind of disappears. I don't know if the cop is in this crowd. I mean, who knows? We never see the cop, but that could be an answer. But is it weird that we never see anything else? Like, and even on some wide shots that we'll be getting later, it just like seems like the rest of Stuttgart is just kind of going along, minding their own business as if nothing's going on here. Is it weird? Like, does do we feel like we should be having sirens and things as this whole scene plays out? Yeah. It kind of does. Like, it feels like I, I, what I, I feel like as we approach this conversation, at what point would the police have been sent? Right. Like, we knew things were kind of blowing up two minutes ago. Right. Because in movie time, because they did the ocular extraction. Uh, please check the merch store at marvelmovieminute.com uh, um, for the new ocular extraction T-shirt. Um, we <laughs> like we knew that was already inbound. And so but but how long would it take them? Would it take police longer to get there in mass mm -hmm. like you know what i mean they're already here like, yeah they got a couple that were just out on patrol like maybe they were just kind of incidental cops coming in with their sirens on we hear them and loki sees <laughs> them and he blasts the first one the second one should be calling in backup like you know yeah, where's the all i'm saying is where's the backup stuttgart's a big place <laughs> that's, that's maybe it takes concern. a little time <laughs> the, the Quinjet flies across the Atlantic Ocean faster <laughs> than the Stuttgart police can travel. Uh, it's it, it doesn't it doesn't speak well, well for the Stuttgart with, cops. with the Quinjet. It, with the Quinjet inbound, maybe Shield has countermanded the police response in Stuttgart. Maybe oh. they've told the Stuttgart forces to stand down. Yes. I love yes. that you you always have such a great answer. It's just perfect. This is it. This is why, this is why you're here. Uh, Marvel, I am available for your comedy purposes. Call me. Uh, yeah, it's, happily manage your wiki. There you go. Yeah, it is. I mean, I always do find it frustrating. And, and because of that, it always ends up feeling like more of a movie shoot because it just feels yeah. like this is our little, we're contained here. And, you know, the civilians are going about their lives, but the film shoot's happening here. And so, it, it I don't know, as I always look at this, it just ends up feeling like um, it makes it kind of feel smaller because it just, um, the rest of the world doesn't seem to be kind of tapping into this. There is a weird scale problem that this movie has because there's so much that happens either at S.H.I.E.L.D. facilities or at the end of the world, like we have in the Battle of New York. And there's nothing intermediate, and everything that happens in Stuttgart, right— feels very parochial. It's, it's a crowd of about mm, 100 people, give or take, maybe 200. And that's about it. All the rest of Stuttgart is empty. There's no other life to the city. There are no consequences to this beyond what happens here. 
And that's because the focus of the movie is on the interaction of the heroes. And so we need to keep the background players and the extras as simplified as possible until we have our great big fireworks display later in the movie. But as a result, the threat that Loki presents here, again, great villain speech, but there's not a big audience. Like if he was using his holograph projections to re-echo this speech in every corner of the earth, like, oh, okay, wow, this is the big declaration of intent. This is pretty serious. This is like world level stakes now. But it's just a matter of you know, one guy needing an eye patch and uh, some people having a really terrible evening so far. It's all about a ruined date night. That's really, <laughs> that's really what happened. These tickets were so expensive. <laughs> so, yeah, but that's why I think it frustrates me because, or it's, and it's not a not a big frustration, but it's it's something that I notice. I end up picking up on it as I watch the scene. It just ends up diminishing it because of that. Um, and uh, yeah, and to your point, I mean, media should also be showing up. They, I mean, I know media m- monitor the police channels, and they, if on that first call, somebody would have shown up. Hey. Somebody just pulled a guy's eyeball out at the opera house. Let's go check it out. Like, there should be cameras showing up to film this. And then we could have that footage of Loki that would be end up getting broadcast around. And so I just, it is that sort of thing that, that, uh, to your point, does kind of make parts of this feel a little smaller and, and l- less heavy. Yeah. Like, if they have footage, if S.H.I.E.L.D. has footage of Hawkeye and Black Widow in action in a war zone, from oh, the omniscient <laughs> cameraman, then surely they're going to have a camera, uh, forgive my speech, eyes on Loki as he takes the guy's eye. Boo. Oh, I'm just mad oh, I didn't think of it. Come on, <laughs> you guys. Oh, uh, well, you know, all right. Well, anyway, this speech is great. I mean, do we, do we want to say anything specifically about anything in the speech or should we jump toward the end when we meet our old German man? I have a lot to say. It, it's all wrapped up in a, in a Christ in the Cape uh, little analysis if, uh, if we have time for that. so Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Do I do that right now? Oh, sure. Let's do that right now. So if if you're listening to the first time to this Father David guy coming on to Marvel Movie Minute, uh, I always bring a little Christ in the Cape segment where I look at these stories of superheroes be, uh, through a, a Christian lens, because, of course, a, a story of a hero is a story about saving the day. And the central mystery of Christianity is around salvation. So in this speech by Loki, there's a little different tack I want to take because what Loki gets into here is a, is a very deep question about the relationship between freedom and authority that has played out, especially in the Western European tradition for the last two, three hundred years. I mean, first, just mad props to the writing in this, because this is Loki at his most Asgardian. Uh, he sounds like the brother of Thor. He says lines like, the bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power. That's just, mwah, chef's kiss. Such good writing. The, the, the logic behind it, though, is not new to the Avengers. This idea of the masses needing a strong hand, of someone needing to step in in a central authority figure, is not just a line repeated by every tin pot tyrant that comes along. There's a very strong representation of it in the Brothers Karamazov, where in the course of that book, uh, two of the brothers, Ivan and Aloysia, are in a conversation. Ivan is the skeptic, more 
uh, atheistic of the brothers. Aloysia is the more God-fearing, pure-hearted of the brothers. And Ivan is trying to show Aloysia the hypocrisy of religion. And so he tells them the story of the Grand Inquisitor, which is this marvelous story within a story. It's just Dostoevsky stunting on everybody else. The Grand Inquisitor is confronted with the return of Jesus to earth. And the Grand Inquisitor locks Jesus up and interrogates him and says, look, Lord Jesus, we don't need you. We have all the authority wrapped up in the church, and you're going around giving people ideas about freedom. And really, you went about your mission all the wrong way. When you were out in the desert being tempted by Satan to turn stones into bread and throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple and let angels save you and to have all the nations gathered under your power, you should have taken those deals. You should have taken the devil up on his offers because that would have been so much better for everyone else. They have been fed. You would have asserted your godhood and you would have assured peace. You would have assured salvation by ruling over all the kingdoms of the earth. And the Grand Inquisitor reveals that he and his fellow churchmen serve the devil in uh, promoting the cause of the church because the the masses need a strong hand to rule over them. And so you can hear that in Loki's speech that humans were made to be ruled. Now, the thing about a good villain is that a good villain is, is always a little bit right but never all the way. They're wrong in very important ways. And looking at this as a Catholic priest, as as one uh, who disagrees with the Grand Inquisitor and with Loki, <laughs> I would agree, though, that we're not made to be masters. And I think that is true that we're made to be ruled by something that that is we are meant to live according to something bigger than ourselves. But Loki is too small to fit that uh, role. We're made to be ruled by a law of freedom, a law in which all can be who we were made to be. And so, therefore, it can't be a law imposed by force and fear. I don't need a man in a silly golden helmet yelling at me to kneel in order to be fully myself. What I need is an invitation out of love and nonviolence to step into a wider horizon, something beyond what I can imagine. And that's what I like about our our elder standing at the end of this minute. We are made to kneel, he says, not to men like you. And I love that distinction. He doesn't disagree with Loki's central premise. He disagrees with to whom the obedience is owed. It's possible to submit to earthly authority, but only if it's just. But there's also not to men like you, and in that I hear a reference to all of humanity. And it's possible, therefore, to submit to a divine authority, and not a small, puny god like Loki, but a God that truly invites through love and nonviolence into a law of freedom that fulfills and, and brings to perfection all the longings of our hearts and everything we have and are. And so that lure of freedom is authentic, but it doesn't diminish life's joy because when we're scrambling for power, that's when we've gone wrong because we don't need power to ensure our freedom. What we do need is that actual humility to recognize that God is God and I am not. And, and in that act of humility, in that act of submission of kneeling, if you like, then we find that the lure of freedom is not a false promise, but a true one. Uh, I find it so fascinating that you bring up, uh, uh, you know, Russian literature. It seems like uh, the Russians get it. Like Bulgakov oh, yeah. and Chekhov and Gorky, like they all write about the the hypocrisy that comes from subjugation and the quest for power. And 
Uh, I absolutely adore that. And that's that's the, the piece that I think is so great about this minute and the way it was cut, the way it fell oh, in man. time that we get a statement Mwah. And a response, and mm-hmm. both men are speaking truth. It's not Loki in gamesmanship. Is he's not lying either? Like his, like his perspective is this is Midgard's journey is to kneel. And as you say, like there are a lot of interpretations that say yes, this is what humanity is designed to do. This is what following is designed to yield. And I think it's fascinating fascinating. It certainly ends up becoming an element within the continuation of these stories in in this franchise as Alexander Pierce kind of has this same interpretation. You were made to be ruled and we're going to, you know, have all these uh, helicarriers hovering over everybody, just making sure that that we're always ready to take you out if if you're being a problem. And and this idea that uh, I, and you could almost, and I know there's this whole shield Hydra sort of thing that, but still, even with the World Security Council, there is kind of this idea of the way that rulers are ruling. And, you know, I, I don't know, I, I find it to be an interesting setup for this uh, story and kind of the continuation of where we're going to be going. This is yet another data point in the Avengers journey toward fascism. Right. And we've talked about this before on on the show in other minutes, like these data points where in the quest to do good, we end up doing something evil. And that that's a a wonderful sort of contrast. Yeah. Might lead to a civil war one of these days. Well, I don't know, Andy. We have a lot of minutes between now and then. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take this one Stuttgart minute at a time. okay? (laughs) (laughs) that's right. That's right. Now, I have a question for you both. Uh, So as our German man, and I'm going to play the IMDb game with you both here in a sec with our (laughs) German old man played by Kenneth Tigar or Tigar. Yes. Um, But the music shifts to a solo violin as he uh, as the camera lands on him before he kind of stands. Is that too on the nose? Are we suddenly like jumping into like Schindler's, Schindler's List territory by just like now or we've got like this solo violin playing with him? Or does it work for you? Was the string quartet too much when Loki was <laughs> sweeping down the stairs yes. of the opera house? Because if that was not too much, then this is not too much. I mean, it's a comic book movie. We can have really on the nose music cues. I'm just grateful that it's not a needle drop. It's not something like like our quote from Fiddler on the Roof or anything like uh, that. That would be a little much. That would be right. too much. Yeah, I'm right, okay right, with right. this little bit of manipulation myself. Yeah, no, it's fine. I I do like it. I'm just being a little cheeky, but but it does strike me as as kind of funny. And I just imagine the director going to Alan Silvestri. You know, it'd be really nice here. What if a little violin kicks in? Like it just makes me laugh when I think about that because probably happened. Yeah. All right. Kenneth Tigar, Tigar, our German old man. He is a face that you Ugh. surely have seen in a lot of things because he has 176 credits, a lot of TV, a lot of movies. Uh, can either of you place him in anything else that you might say is on his IMDb known for? The Avengers. I'm going to say the Avengers. <laughs> okay. Rats. Oh, beat me to it. <laughs> and I have one more. I have one more where he is a very familiar, mm. as you say, he is a face he for sure. Much. Yes. He is a, a character in a show that I happen to have watched 
fairly recently. I was late to the party, and it's on Amazon Prime. And I'll I'll say it, but I don't want to give it up if David knows it. I'm I'm coming up empty. I would hazard to guess a genre. I'm I would guess that he has been in something Holocaust related, uh, given his background and general demeanor. It's, he would seem to fit into that kind of heavy uh, human drama of uh, of that that time period. Uh, well, it, it would be, it, it's amusing that you say that he, he was in, um, the man in the high castle. Aha. Right. He played right. <laughs> Himmler in, in high castle. Oh, so. All right. Yeah. That's the only other one I have. I'm sure he's like, I, the way I see him, he's like the disgruntled chief of police. You know, he's like, I'm really angry all the time. And you'll see me in occasional transition scenes. He has that sort of face where he plays somebody in the police or a medical profession or a legal profession like he ends up in oh, a lot yeah. of those sorts of roles because of his look and to your point uh well the avengers obviously is in here um but his his background he's actually uh, uh an american actor born in massachusetts he's been acting for a very long time since uh the 1970 he appeared in his first tv show um but his four known for is, I'll just tell you, The Avengers, you got that one. Lethal Weapon 3, where he plays Jarvis Becker from the Bomb Squad. Was that the, that the one with the toilet scene? Was he, like, standing outside what's-his-name's house? Or is he, his legs fell asleep while he was on the toilet? He's I think in that scene. That's Lethal Weapon 2, though. But oh, he's in both of the movies. He's in both oh. of them as the same character. But Lethal Weapon 3 is the one that's on his known for. Okay. Also, Creator from 1985. I never saw this, but I know I saw the cover of it because it was Peter O'Toole um, trying to, I think the story was he's trying to clone his dead wife, uh, played by Mariel Hemingway. Um, so that's, Classic story. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Last but not least, it was 1997's Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson, Julie Roberts, and Patrick Stewart. So. Okay, I would not have picked that ever in a million billion years. And I guess I know the error of my ways that the Man of the High Castle was too recent for known for. Uh, probably, even though I think it ended in uh, 2019, right? So it's not that new. So, But anyway, to your points, though, a lot of the roles that he was in involve kind of those professions where it's like, you know, he's wearing a suit and tie or involved with the police or something like that. So. But uh, and interestingly, he's American, but it says in his uh, trivia that he speaks German fluently with a perfect accent. Hence, wow. probably why they chose to cast him for this part. Awesome. So that's Kenneth Tigar. And uh, but yeah, so he's going to stand up here and have this conversation. We, we've already talked a little bit about the not to men like you line that we get right at the end of this minute. Oh, There's going to be a great conversation bad. between him and Loki in the next minute. So let's save that for next time. We'll come back in minute 42 and continue the conversation. So with that, uh, Father David, where can people learn about uh, you and all the stuff that you're the the podcast you're guesting on and everything else you're up to in the in this big wide world? Uh, you c you can find everything that I do in one convenient place at fatherdavidmowry.com. That's f a t h e r david m o w r y dot com. I have a page there that links to all the various podcast appearances that I've been on. There have been so many that uh, if you go to the website, it may be under construction. Pardon our dust. I've <laughs> been a little behind in adding some minutes. Uh, you know, so 
but uh, I'm sure these minutes will be on there in very short order. Fantastic. Well, we uh, certainly appreciate it. We'll have the links in the show notes, everybody, so you can check those out. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about Minute 42. So, Pete, thanks as always. Okay, maybe I won't kneel, but can I sit? (laughs) Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>